Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Gabrielle Jimenez. At the age of 40-something, she changed her whole life by going back to school to become a nurse. In her book, Soft Landing, she shares how she became a hospice nurse, reliving the struggles and obstacles that repeatedly tried to get in the way. As a hospice nurse, she's held hands, hugged, and cried with loved ones who had to say goodbye to someone they love. She's felt their pain, sadness, and loss, and in some cases, their relief when someone they love took their last breath. She's been inspired by culture, tradition, faith, and deep love, and learned many lessons about life through death. The most humbling about being fully present for someone else, and remembering that it's not about her. Her advice is to not wait for the bedside to say I'm sorry. She says all we can count on is right this second, making each moment matter, living a life filled with honesty, kindness, and love, and not leaving this life with regret. Welcome, Gabrielle. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I just it just occurred to me. Uh, reading your, you know, reading about you, that um, hospice nurse, sort of like counselor, uh, is a more doable thing for lots of people at a slightly older age. Uh, I can't imagine having been a counselor at 22, you know, right out of college or something. Do you think that's true with hospice nursing as well? I think that's very true. For me, you know, I think my whole life led me to this job. I just wasn't aware of it. Little things like, you know, marital changes or or my own loss that I really wasn't completely present for during my life. But all of the experiences I've had have led me to where I am now where I I'm able to be fully present. I don't think I could have done this at 20, but having said that, I have met some young nurses that just got their license specifically to be a hospice nurse, and there is something inside of them that blows my mind. So for me, it was better to do it at a later date. Um, you have a little more wisdom and growth. Yeah, we would never want to overgeneralize for sure. Uh so you say you took an unusual path. Is is the only unusual thing about your path, uh, from your perspective, that it was a second career, or are there other things that have made your path unusual for you? Well, it was definitely a second career, nothing I had ever thought of, of doing. It was really hard to go. I didn't do well in school in the first place, and as you'll read in my book, there were quite a few struggles. Um, even that process was very humbling, and I grew a lot. Um, it was really hard, but I became a, a, went back to nursing school because I was a caregiver for someone, and I wanted to do more. So, so it was 
it was just hard the whole way to get there, but so worth it. And so, uh, of course, I, I did read about that in your book, but uh, did you had you ever had the thought early in life of nursing or anything of that sort, or did it kind of uh, come out of the blue in a way from it the from the caregiving the experience? It came out of the blue. I think I have always been one of those people that wants to take care of everybody. In fact, I've always I've heard multiple times, Gabby. You don't have to save the world, but I want to save the world. You know, I, I want to, to encourage people to be kinder and, and treat each other well. I want to, I think I've always been a caregiver. I just didn't find the right venue for, for these things that I have inside me to be used properly. And I know that it takes a, a ton of commitment and determination to, uh, I think you mentioned in the book that you, you have uh, dyslexia or something similar, is that right? So to, so to right. face off with Sorry. that and and have to because um, because of course nursing involves a ton of pretty intense coursework science and of course I'm a little science phobic so maybe <laughs> maybe I'm projecting <laughs> but um, that that must have been. Uh, to to kind of get over the hurdle of your assumptions about what you could learn or not, that must have taken quite a bit to do. Well, I didn't realize I was dyslexic until I was halfway through nursing school. I struggle with focus. I can't remember things. I skip lines. I reverse things. It was so hard, and I just couldn't. I couldn't understand why I was having such a hard time, and so I was diagnosed with dyslexia and then once I started getting training with that it all made so much sense I wish I had learned that a lot earlier in life I think it would have made things a lot easier so yeah the struggle was real it was it was super hard Um, and then I was taught some really great skills that helped me continue the rest of my training um, a little bit easier Um, I also was able to get the school to set up a special room for people like me that get distracted easily, and they would put up a sign on the door that said to be quiet around it so I could have a quiet space to do my my test-taking and studying, and and that helped as well. Just as a side note, I've worked with several people with with, uh, learning disabilities in adulthood, and when that doesn't get caught, I know that at least for those people I'm thinking of, there was a price in terms of their sense of their own intelligence. Uh, quite intelligent people, but, you know, they kind of felt dumb in school, I guess. Uh, so that's another a psychological hurdle to jump over, isn't it? Well, you know, um, there is nothing worse than having self-doubt. And and as as you get older, that only increases. I have spent the majority of my youth thinking that I wasn't smart, that I wasn't capable of great things, that I, I wouldn't achieve anything. And so I lived a life that never set limits. I lived a life that didn't reach the stars. And going through nursing school, I felt like I had this childlike excitement with knowledge and I was so fired up by what I was learning. I Even now, I just want to learn. I want to take it all in because what I realize is that I am smart and that I am capable and that the stars are reachable. 
but it was hard growing up, always doubting myself. And I, I, I had the idea while reading your book that, <clears throat> that <clears throat> excuse me, that, that kind of um, serves you a little bit when you're working with your patients in that there's a kind of, um, you know, acceptance of their difficulties that I believe sort of comes from us being able to accept our own difficulties in some manner. Do you connect those two things? Um, Yeah, I didn't really think about that until you said it. Um, I, as I get older, as I had gone through the whole process of going through school and graduating and becoming a nurse, the one thing that I am more acutely aware of is that we all have struggle and it's hard. And if you can, especially a family member who is going through the, you know, the loss of their loved one, I can sit there and I have so much um, presence for them. I just, people need to be heard. They need to be understood. They need to have things explained to them in a way that doesn't make them feel inept or, or unintelligent. So I find myself finding a way to connect with each person and talking to them. And in this, this case, with, with, with regards to hospice, is about the medications their loved one is taking or, or the process that they're about to go through. I talk to them with honesty and sincerity and kindness and, and patience, and I, I know that they have the ability to understand if I just take the time to tell them in a way that is clear and kind. I can definitely see those two things being connected. And I also know that at first when you got your, your nursing degree and your license, you didn't immediately work in hospice. And it's, it stood out to me that um, you started in, in kind of nursing home work or assisted living work and that you were getting in trouble for uh, spending too much time with your patients which, of course, you wouldn't, hopefully, wouldn't get in trouble with, with uh, a hospice organization. Well, I shouldn't generalize, but um, hopefully you, that's part of the job, isn't it, in hospice? So I can see where that would be a fit. Well, oh boy, you tapped into one of the things I struggled with most. As, I, as you read in the book, there was this one patient, and we only had one hospice patient on that floor, and I would stop in, and I would say hello to him, and I would read to him, and I would take my lunch breaks with him, and I was scolded for that. And um, I, I, that struck a nerve. Um, right now, and for the past couple of years, I've worked with Mission Hospice and Home Care, and I am so grateful for the time that they allow me to be with patients and the, the, they've encouraged me to do that. And so I get to be who I am and sometimes I'm with them for a little while, but isn't that what it's about? I mean, that's what we're here for is to provide that care. I don't have a watch that says, oh, your time is up. I have to go now. I want to give them all of me. Sometimes that doesn't work in my favor, but it's the truth. That's who I am. And I love working for um, a hospice organization that allows that. So the difference is huge. I would not go back to an environment that didn't allow that. I'm going to ask you to read a little bit of the book just so people can kind of hear uh, hear from you in that voice as well. But it, it strikes me that this piece of writing that I'm going to ask you to read 
really is about being in that kind of environment where you're supported and part of a team and uh, encouraged to do what's right for the patients. Um, I think that's really a blessing. I hope someday uh, should I be in hospice that, that I have that kind of care and attention. Could you share that bit uh, about the teamwork that you encounter on uh, working in hospice? Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll start from this point. One of the first things I learned was that I am not a solo act. I do not do this alone, and I couldn't possibly do it without the team of people I continue to be inspired by. Each person on staff brings a unique gift, each one a uniquely patterned fabric square that becomes the quilt of comfort for every patient that comes through our doors. We absolutely must work together. We absolutely must trust one another, and we absolutely must encourage and support one another. Otherwise, we cannot do what we do as well as we do it. I think one of the best lessons I've learned and still continue to learn in this process is how to be a part of a team. The first mistake you can make in this business is thinking you know everything and assuming you can do it on your own. Our team was made up of co-directors, medical doctors, case managers, spiritual support, social work, nurses, bereavement and grief support, home health aides, and volunteers. Each member of this team contributes something valuable, and it is up to you to find a way to work with them. You must truly understand what their role is and what they contribute to the patient, the families, and your team. I can't even count how many times I sat around a table with them and listened as they shared their thoughts, their concerns, opinions, and many times tears about a patient who was going through their process or whom had just passed. What I started to realize as time went on was how incredibly valuable each of them were and how much I would learn from them. I started to get out of my own head and truly listened when they each spoke because I finally got it that I was going to be a better nurse because of each one of them. The more I listened, the more I learned. You know, something I hadn't thought of before, and I've thought about hospice a lot, as you can imagine, with with the kinds of guests I have on the show and how many people either have experienced it on the patient end or on the uh, professional end, was that uh, somehow the way the benefit, the hospice benefit got crafted in uh, in our health system really requires all of those different roles. And I wondered if you know uh, who advocated for that, because I agree with you, having been on, uh, you know, with my wife's illness and death, having been on the patient end, that those are really distinct roles and everybody does something a little bit different and differently valuable uh, but that's not the usual way that health benefits are thought of uh, as as teamwork. So do you know how that came to be? Well, I honestly don't. I, I don't have an answer for that, and I'm sorry about that. I, but I, I do, I, I think that um, it, it's so important relative to patient care to have a little, one person can't possibly do that. So, so it's obviously grown over the years and it's come to what we're doing now, which is having that team influence. And it can't be done any other way. There's no way one person can do it because each one brings a little bit something different. And, and understanding that and learning that and, and truly um, welcoming that into the care 
takes a little bit of responsibility off you if you can just focus on what you're doing and also to encourage to the patient and the family, you know, I, I really want you to see the social work and this is what they do. Or I welcome you to speak to our spiritual counselor. They're wonderful and this is what they do. So we have to mm-hmm. know what they do, what their value is, what they bring and help the family embrace all of those different members. I, I, I'm aware, uh, I'm thinking of, of the period when my mother was dying uh, of a time when actually the social worker and the nurse were there together. Uh, it just so happened. And it was clear that they were part of a team and that uh, that really brought value to, that was home hospice. I think, am I right that you work in, an, in a um, uh, residential hospice program? We do both. We do facilities and homes, and we also have our hospice houses as well. So I, I think that, that in, in, any, in any of those cases, um, it just there was something very comforting about feeling the connection between the team mem- members, uh, you know, that, that they really were checking in on how to, what, what my mom needed and what the family needed and how to supply that. So I, um, I've had that experience a few times on the other side of the table as well. It's time That's for very a break. Important. So let's, no, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say that it is, um, it's very important and it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about being a solo act. It's very easy to think that you can swoop in and do it all, but you can't. And once you do connect with the team, uh, a huge difference will be made. Amen to that. Listeners, when we go to break, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. There's links to Facebook, Twitter, etc., LinkedIn. Um, there's also a link to my my novel, which is called An Ocean Between Them. It's about a mother and daughter trying to find their way back to each other and find forgiveness when the daughter is diagnosed with cancer. And to find Gabriela Menes, look for her book, Soft Landing. We'll be back soon. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Have you ever stopped to think that most of the time your health is related to your lifestyle? If you eat right, hopefully you'll live well, sleep the way you should, and you're likely to be healthy. Stress and bad food could mean a shorter and more unpleasant life. Hidden Secrets to Health with host Christina Cole helps you decode the messages your body sends you. The right changes mean the right impact on your health. Start by tuning in Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 
888-484-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Gabrielle Jimenez about her book, Soft Landing, and her work in hospice. Uh, Let's talk just a little, you know, one thing I was quite aware of while I was reading was, well, two things, actually. One is um, how deeply committed you are and that you often go above and beyond you know, coming back after your shift is ended or staying longer. Um, and I and I wanted to hear from you, uh, and this is related to the second thing I was wondering, so I'll, I'll put them both out, uh, you know, how you protect yourself from actually overdoing it and, and not having, um, you know, burning out or whatever. I don't particularly love that term, but I, I guess I'll just go with overdoing it. And then related to that, working in a grief environment, uh, you know, I find for myself, I'm so immersed in um, grief, loss, death. I really need to do things to take breaks from it um, so that I don't get kind of tapped out. So both of those two things are part of my question. How do you take care of yourself so that you keep your energy for uh, for the work you do? Uh, I think this part of your our, our talk is going to cap into anyone who knows me quite well because um, I, I'm constantly told, Gabby, you need to take a break, or Gabby, you know, you need to talk to someone, or Gabby, you know, um, it's very hard work. And I give my whole heart, and I don't know how not to. Um, I I feel things deeply. I I connect, and I love it. And um, and and I am learning now. I'm much better at it to set boundaries, to actually turn the phone off on the weekends, 
Um, I paint. I um, started painting. You'll read about that in my book. Um, I have a patient that really encouraged me to paint, and I took it to another level, and I actually am in a gallery uh, every couple months, and I have hung in restaurants, and um, one of the things she taught me was to just put the paint on the canvas and let it go and just just let it move itself around. And so I turn my music up really loud and I go out into my studio and I just let the paint play. And, and sometimes I cry and sometimes I laugh and, and I just, I, I kind of check out for a little bit. And that has been really helpful. I, um, I walk a lot. I also have learned who I can talk to and who I can't because a lot of times people aren't going to say, how was your day? because they're afraid I'm going to tell them. So you have to be able to find the right people, <laughs> right? Amen to that. My day. <laughs> it's the truth. So um, the other thing is, is that um, our company has started this group for the clinicians to sit and talk with spiritual and, and, and social work support to be able to talk about each of our experiences and to share how we're feeling. And, and I've also found a couple of my fellow nurses that we can just we can cry, we can laugh, we can talk. And I think for me, I'm not going to change the way I am. I am still going to be 100% completely fully present at the bedside. I am going to give my whole heart. I am going to make sure the landing is soft. But at the end of the day, I'm going to find someone to talk to. I'm going to let it go. I may go to the, the ocean. I may go to the mountains. I may go to a friend. But I am going to always talk about it because I have to. Because I want to make sure that the next person I see is given that same amount. I don't want to overflow. I want to always have a little bit of room for self-care. And I am getting better and better at it as I, as I move forward. Well, I like what you're saying, which is that it's not so much how much you're giving. You know, people are seeing you you stayed late or you went back or, you know, what what you're doing in your work and they're saying, uh-oh, too much. But uh, I think it's actually having ways to maintain our passion that keeps us from kind of tapping out. And it sounds as if you have those ways, regardless of, you know, maybe what some might, I don't know, consider overwork. <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't come down to that. It's, it's whether you're fed enough to have it to give. Is that fair to say? Yes. That's very fair to say. I, 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 this is what I'm supposed to do. I feel it with every ounce of my being. And I'm going to continue giving exactly what I give. And I'm going to do it my way because that's what works for me. And, and I am only going to surround myself with a, a company or fellow workers that allow me to keep giving that way with the idea that I promise in return to take care of myself because that is so important. And so I'm finding balance. I, I'm, I, I don't want to do this... I don't want to do this, I don't want to stop having the passion for it um, and keep moving. So if I find that that happens, then I know I need to step back. But until that happens, the passion is going to ooze out of me like a fire hose because I got this. I love this. This is what I want to do. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's a, a bit of a segue, but there are certain aspects 
that might at times be more difficult than others. And there's there's a, a piece in your book that has to do a little bit with the End of Life Option Act, which when I have a chance to talk about that, I do. I actually interviewed uh, Brittany Maynard's husband, Dan Diaz. Um, she was very instrumental as a patient. Well, he really was instrumental in getting the End of Life Option Act passed in California and um, interviewed some other people about that. But I, I wonder if you could share that part of your book and then we could talk a little bit about that because I think it's an important thing to get out there. It is a very important thing. Um, I obviously have my own opinions of it and I voice that very clearly in the part that I'm about to read. Um, I really, I, I, I feel very passionate about it. And so um, I'll read this part and then we can talk further. Um, death is difficult. It is emotional, it is heavy and hard, and brings out the very best in us, but many times the very worst, and this is normal. I go back to what I said earlier in this book, that one of the biggest lessons you learn in hospice is that it is not about you. So when I am in a situation that I do not agree with or support or have strong opinion about, I have to remind myself each time not to voice my opinion. But sometimes you have to say something. Sometimes you have to remind someone else that this is not about them. And most times it is heard and responded to well. The End of Life Option Act is a very good example of that. As in palliative sedation or choosing not to eat or asking to have life-sustaining machines turned off or treatments discontinued. I have seen hundreds of people struggle from a diagnosis that is taking their life. I have seen that same amount of people take their last breath. And if I have learned anything at all, it is that all people have the right to choose. We do not have the right to judge, condemn, or criticize the choices someone else makes for themselves. And in my opinion, especially relative to death. We may not understand it. We may not like it. It might not be something we would do, but that is their choice. I also respect those that don't agree with these choices. I respect their personal opinions and beliefs. But again, I've seen a lot of deaths, and I, if put in a situation like that, I would want to make sure that I have a choice to not have my pain or suffering linger. I do not want to be hooked up to machines. I do not want to have medicines to prolong the inevitable. I don't want my family to sit at my bedside day after day, week after week, or worse, months or years as I lay there struggling to live. That is not a good quality of life. My ultimate choice would be to have the opportunity to say goodbye, throw myself a huge party, dress up and look my best, and go out with a bang. And after everyone leaves, swallow a half a glass of water mixed with the EOLOA medications and close my eyes gently and peacefully. I have the choice to die with dignity and grace. You know, I've, I've, uh, I used to teach in a continuing education program, and we had Lonnie Shavelson uh, speak to us, who's, who is uh, someone who specializes in uh, the End of Life Option Act, um, helping patients navigate whether that's actually the best choice for them and, and being the attending for, for people. And it's interesting because I spoke with him right when it was happening and had talked with, I'd been at a conference and interacted with a lot of people in hospice who were very opposed to that as being a part of their job. And then by the time it actually happened, 
he said that he was uh, actually able to uh, engage hospice systems in helping them to see that it was a definite part of their job. And obviously, uh, your particular, the place you work, uh, sees it that way, that it's just an option that's there that you can offer people uh, as as one of many options, yes? Correct. We, we have quite a few people here um, that support it, participate in it, um, and, and help the families with it. There are some that don't, and I respect that. But together as a team, that's what sort of makes us whole, right? We have different people that believe different things. No one judges. No one criticizes. No one tries to talk anyone out of anything. They just choose to opt out. I respect that. Um, but there are many that do, and um, I am one of them. I think it's interesting, I I hadn't quite thought about it until I read your book, that there are people who support uh, complete sedation when pain can't be managed and and such, who don't support the End of Life Option Act, which is quite peculiar because once you're on that form of sedation, you're no longer interacting, is that correct? Correct. Correct. There's, so no, it doesn't it doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But do you, can you make any sense of that? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I, no, I don't make any sense of that. Look what we do to pets. I mean, why is that okay? Um, yeah, now you're getting me fired up. So yeah, I don't understand <laughs> the difference. I think palliative <laughs> sedation. It, it's Here's the thing. When someone is dying and they, they can't verbalize or, or they know that the pain is going to get worse or someone's going to have to change their diapers in a bed and they can't, they can't even ask to have their teeth brushed, wouldn't you want to do something really kind to them? Whether it's the End of Life Option Act, whether it's palliative sedation, at the end of the day, what that is doing is that is kindly removing pain and struggle from someone you love. And isn't that what we need to do? It's about being kind. You can call it palliative sedation. You can call it end-of-life option act. It could be hooked up to a a drip or a, a cocktail made in a glass. But any way you look at it, you're helping that person have a, a, a kinder and more dignified death. That's what it should be. That's where the focus needs to lie. That's what's most important. I, I interviewed the wife of a man who chose uh, um, cessation of eating and drinking. He had Alzheimer's and he lived in a state that did not have an end-of-life option act and he chose that because he felt that by the time you know he he uh, he he looked for a moment where he was he could still make the decision um but his quality was gone if you will but what i remember from that interview is that hospice would not involve themselves until the systems until his systems started shutting down uh, so that you know he from their view qualified if that makes sense and that mm-hmm. seemed such a rough spot to be in for them you know that um, they knew he was going to die within much a much shorter time than six months but they they didn't get 
real help or advice about how to manage that uh, until quite late in the process. She, she's written a book and, and now is trying to advocate for people at least having the information about how to make that uh, a peaceful ending. Well, because it can be a struggle. I mean, you know what it's like when you've gone a day without food. I mean, that imagine two or three days or five days. I, I met a woman that, that her family was so against um, palliative sedation or end-of-life option act or anything that might... Um, hasten her, her passing, uh, whether it was uh, religious reasons or personal beliefs, they, they couldn't support it. So she decided to stop eating. And um, they were okay with that, which I really struggled with because she struggled. I and mean, she was afraid to take a sip of water because she was afraid that that was going to keep her alive a little longer. So she was I mean, she didn't tell me she was suffering. I'm, I'm not speaking for her, but I would have to say that couldn't have been comfortable. It, it, if we at, are at least at ways. at least at first, because of course, correct. Uh, it, when you're when you're dying of an illness, I know there's a point at which your body no longer wants uh, food or drink. You know, as a natural yes. part of the process. But of course, people that choose to do that are not in that process until later. Yeah. So there's usually several days, aren't there, of um, yes. body wanting to eat, but you don't, but you don't um, meet that. You don't, you don't feed it. <laughs> let's let's continue with that because I think that's a very this this sense of choice and. Uh, What's what people consider a, a livable choice and what they don't. It's a very interesting topic, and it certainly is a big part of of my conceptions about hospice and end of life. Listeners, you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com, the Good Grief host page, and to find Gabrielle Jimenez's book, Soft Landing, you can just go to Amazon back after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Have you ever stopped to think that most of the time your health is related to your lifestyle? If you eat right, hopefully you'll live well, sleep the way you should, and you're likely to be healthy. Stress and bad food could mean a shorter and more unpleasant life. Hidden Secrets to Health with host Christina Cole helps you decode the messages your body sends you. The right changes mean the right impact on your health. Start by tuning in Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. 
Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Gabrielle Jimenez talking about her life as a a hospice nurse and her book, Soft Landings. And before the break, uh, Gabrielle, we were talking about the ways that people might, uh, you know, accepting that they are in their nearing the end of their lives might choose to, uh, you know, stop eating or drink and, and drinking. They might choose to. Um, access the end of life option act uh, or palliative sedation Um, and one thing that was coming to my mind was that we do a whole lot of things that didn't used to be possible to um, disrupt the um, the a natural death like the drugs we take and the operations we have and you know that that we're we're in the process of lengthening life and that makes the process of ending life so much more complicated well that's for sure i mean imagine how a nurse feels right we go to nursing school to heal and cure but you become a hospice nurse <laughs> Um, so is my my ultimate goal is is to make death a little bit gentler and a, a little bit easier and and that requires sometimes choices like palliative sedation end of life option act that type of thing um, but if it's already if you already know it's inevitable and and you can shorten the amount of pain or struggle and the option is to take a medication then. Yes. I say yes. That's the kindest, dignified way to be. I have a friend that is currently in hospice and um, had been on blood thinners for uh, because she had had a blood clot earlier. And finally, she and her hospice nurse were talking about whether she wanted to continue that. She decided not to continue it. So that's kind of an example, you know, uh, in my mind, that in a way that was 
I guess, um, reducing the possibility of pain, but it was mostly something that keeps you from dying, right? Um, yeah, when you, you're absolutely when you take, right. <laughs> and she's not trying to keep herself from dying. She's trying to die gently. Uh, so it's, it's, an, it's an example in my own life right now of those kinds of quandaries. And, you know, the hospice nurse sort of gently said, are you... How are you feeling about continuing to take this? You know, and she's like, maybe I don't want to do that. So, and um, you know, there's lots of choices like that: turning off um, pacemakers Oxygen. and you know, all all kinds of things that that have to be factored in. Um, but I have a- let's talk. Let us talk a little bit about grief, uh, because of course the inevitable. Um, aftermath of hospice care as a family grieving in whatever way that they do and probably you too as I understand it because you talk a lot about your patients in the book you get quite attached to them I know that just on the break you got um, notice that one of your patients had died and so there's always I imagine some level of grief for you too um or at least awareness of other people's grief. How is it navigating that for you? <laughs> Sometimes it's really hard. <laughs> I, you know, I was especially in moments like my... this. I'm sorry. Especially at moments when someone that you've gotten really close to has actually died. Yes. Exactly. So I, I was sitting here, you know, having my interview with you and the phone uh, lit up and I could see that this patient had passed. And, you know, whether I'm with them for a couple hours, a couple days, months, um, when they pass, it's really hard because it's not so much that I get attached. It's that I... I feel their pain. I feel their struggle, and and I get so focused on on helping them the best way I can to make their landing a little softer. And I, but I also see the pain in their family's eyes and the hurt. And I try so hard to help them and to guide them and to support them. It's it's personal, and so. When they die, sometimes I'm sad for their loss. Sometimes I'm reminded of one I had years ago that maybe I didn't respond to as emotionally. It's always bringing up something emotional. And when I saw the phone light up and this patient passed, I wanted to cry because I was thinking about his family and their next few weeks and what they're going to go through. And, and it's personal. Their losses of mine. Maybe I, I am not their family. Maybe I'm not even their friend. But they are, I feel it. I feel the loss. And it makes me sad. And I guess I'd have to say that as someone who's been on the other end uh, quite often, that is really what I always want is someone who's actually emotionally connected with the experience that I'm having. Uh, You know, not to the degree I am, of course. But that's what we would wish for, and I also realize that that's a lot. (laughs) You know, when you're working with multiple families, uh, it's, it's a lot to carry. 
Um, and especially, you know, you're you're saying grief is not something that just sort of goes away. Could you could you read that part of the book uh, uh, that has to do with your conception of grief? Absolutely. <sighs> okay. One of my most humbling realizations was learning to let go of my tools and hand them to the loved ones. Learning to step back was huge for me. It is so easy to step in and guide the family from the bedside, but what I have come to realize is just how much better it is for the family if I give them the tools and teach them how to use them. What I have noticed is that the grieving process is just a little gentler when the family is involved in the care. And when they are fully present at the bedside, I find such joy stepping back and watching them. I hear people say it will get better with time after someone passes away. I struggle with those words. My sister passed away several years ago. She was sick for a very long time, and she fought the good fight. After she died, I couldn't help thinking I wish I could have done more, visited more, told her in more depth the true effect she had on me all these years. I have regrets. And it has not gotten easier. In fact, I think it has become more painful for me because I miss her terribly. When I was going through nursing school, she supported me from a hospital bed. She always encouraged me every step of the way. She did this all my life as well. She was always good to me, even when I did not reciprocate. I have learned that it does not get better with time. It gets a little less painful maybe, but loss is loss. I think of grief as an ocean. Some days the waves come up gently against the shore. They linger there a bit and then slowly roll back to where they started. Some days, though, it's like a wild crashing wave coming down so hard on the shore it feels as though they could break something. And when they go back out, it takes a little piece of you with them. But it can work the other way, too. You can stand at the shore, and as a wave comes towards you, ask it to please carry some of the pain you are feeling away. Hand it to the ocean. Ask it to help you. This is what works for me. Death is emotional. Loss is emotional. Missing someone is painful. Death reminds us how beautiful life is and how much we take for granted. My advice to people after someone dies is to go through the emotions, whatever they may be. Cry when you need to. Feel everything as deeply as you need to. Don't hold anything back. But also, don't be afraid to laugh or smile. There will be moments where you might find something funny or you will be having a good time and you stop because you think you shouldn't be feeling this way or acting that way. Stop. Laugh, play, and enjoy your life. The person you said goodbye to would want you to enjoy your life. Life is fragile, it is unpredictable, and there are no guarantees or promises that anything beyond this very second is for sure. And yet as humans, we continually think beyond the tomorrows and we use words like one day when we talk about something we hope to do. If I have learned anything at all in my work, it is right this very moment is the only thing we can be absolutely certain of. I was I was interested particularly in one thing that you said, which which is that families feeling that they have um, ownership in a way, I guess is a word that comes to mind, of the process that they've been able to be there for the person they love. Uh, you feel of affects grief, and um, I think that's true of me. Uh, there's a sense of peace I have that I was able to help the people in my life that I've lost. Um, and there's a pain 
in a few situations where I wasn't able to do that. Uh, that that is absent in those in those times where I've been able to be fully engaged. But is there more that you'd like to say about that? Uh, I see um, I see so many different ways people react um, when someone takes their last breath. Um, a lot of times you will have a person that's been sick for quite some time and every day, you know, the family member is at the bedside and then they know, they know this is going to happen. But when it does happen, it's as though it's, it's the first time you're hearing about it. That breath is huge shock and it, 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 it hits you hard. So I try to, um, I try to help the family prepare. I, I talk to them about things that they can say, um, things that they can do, um, give permission to your loved ones, um, especially if it's a mother and you're the child at the bedside. I say, tell her thank you. Tell her you're going to be okay. I think if, if for me, I've watched um, the, the reaction be a little less shocking when I help them to say goodbye at the bedside. I think if you say the things that you need to say, if you prepare, if you um, you hold their hand and you, you tell them, it's okay, tell her how much you love her, tell her that you're giving permission, tell her that you're going to be okay and you're going to take care of your brother or your father or your sister, that moment makes that last breath a little easier and it makes the steps going forward a little gentler because you have taken that moment to go through the process while the process is happening, not, not suddenly dealing with it after, it's, it's after that last breath has, has been taken. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It, and it resonates with, with uh, my experience. And I'm, I'm also aware that there are two situations that get in, you know, we're talking to people about people who actually are showing up with their loved one enough so that you can tell them that, <laughs> right? They're, yeah. they're, um, they're present. Um, but some people, I, I noticed my wife was sick for a very, very long time. And there are people that honestly just avoided her. Um, and a few of them came around at the very end. The, the absolute worst time to, you know, <laughs> to actually try to engage. Um, they were, they sure were shocked um, because she was not really able to engage by then. Um, so there's that. There's emotionally staying away and, and being left with the regret of that. But there's also uh, being prevented by circumstance from being there as much as you would choose to. We can't really talk about that in the just few minutes we have left, but I just want to acknowledge it that uh, some people, just because of what it takes for them to survive, don't get to show up in that way. Um, but I guess you would, would you say still if they can at least express love and forgiveness, they'll probably do a little better with grief? I think that um, I think life is about ownership. I think that if you can own the things that you could have done differently and take responsibility for it and let go of that, your your grief will be 
a little less painful. And sometimes you're not at the bedside to do it. So my advice in the book, if you, you will read, obviously, is that I always say, don't wait for the bedside to say, I'm sorry. Try to do that before. Try to do the forgiveness thing. And sometimes you can't do it with that person, and I understand that. But, but if you can try to do that, your grief will be a little gentler. If you can, um, and whether it's at the bedside or, or out on a mountaintop, wherever it is that you're trying to work through this process, you have to find a way to let go of that and, and truly feel. You have to feel all of it. Well, I guess as someone who works a lot with, um, with people coming into my office with an unresolved grief of some sort, that's uh, we all still have relationships with the people we've lost, so it's never too late for what we're talking about. If you couldn't do it, if you couldn't do it right when someone died, uh, it, there's still the possibility of that later on. <laughs> so I want to put in a word for that as someone who uh, encounters that very often. It doesn't tend to go away, uh, does it? No, you know, I am. Um, it's still there to deal with. My yeah, dad well, was, guess what's um, happened? We've we've run out of time. Can you believe it? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope we'll encounter each other again and I want to thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It was um it was really nice. Good, I'm glad. And listeners, to find Gabriel Jimenez's book, you can just go to Amazon and look for Soft Landings, Lessons I Learned About Life Through Death. Next week, I'll have Julie Potaker, author of Life Falls Apart, But You Don't Have To, Mindful Methods for Staying Calm in the Midst of Chaos. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.